Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu, uh, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. For this episode, I am honored to have Dr. Harpreet Singh from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration as our guest. Dr. Singh is a medical oncologist. She is a Southern California native, uh, did some of her medical training at USC, which is where we actually first met. She was the, the prize pupil of our very tough GI oncology group. She is now the director of the Division of Oncology II at the U.S. FDA and an expert on both geriatric and thoracic oncology. Harpreet, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, really looking forward to this. So let's start with some of the basics, um, just to, as an introduction to things. You know, we'll, we'll hear, a lot of our listeners will hear about FDA approval of a drug. What does FDA approval mean? And at what point does a company approach the FDA about approval of their drug? So an FDA approval means that the drug is authorized for use in the United States. So remember that it's the United States Food and Drug Administration, and that does not necessarily mean that the drug uh, will be covered by insurance, but frequently insurance coverage does follow an FDA approval. And we can talk a little bit later about the difference between an accelerated approval and a full or regular approval, which are different. In terms of when a company should approach us, they should really approach us at the, the time that they're even considering developing the drug at the, at the point of a first-in-human trial when they're trying to figure out dose selection, when they're selecting the appropriate population, and then as they think through a steady design that would be appropriate for what we call registration potential, which basically means the potential for a drug approval. Now, when that trial is complete and we have this registrational trial, we have this big data set and the FDA is considering approval, what kinds of things does it look at? In totality, we, we take a, a risk-benefit approach to each drug. So we look at the benefits. So is this drug effective? What is the effectiveness? And then is it safe? And what are the safety concerns? So we, we, we look at safety and tolerability and we look at efficacy as two major components of every application. We've also been paying more attention and encouraging more tolerability data. And that really comes out of patient reported outcomes. But overall, it's just a risk benefit assessment. Does the benefit of Providing access to this drug outweigh the risks, you know, often that come with toxicity concerns. And in oncology, because this is a life-threatening disease, we certainly tolerate a great deal of toxicity and we make sure that we label that appropriately so that providers know what to be aware of. Now, for a U.S.-based FDA approval, do things like cost or value lend any consideration? No, and thanks for asking because we 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 get this so much, and I think um, it's certainly not in our purview. We're, we're governed by the by the code of federal regulations, and this is from Congress. And we're actually we don't take cost into account when considering drug approvals, nor do we take into account practice of medicine. And by that, I mean just because we approve something because it's deemed safe and effective, certainly 
does not mean that it has to be utilized or that we're recommending that it's used. And there are several examples of that in breast cancer, lung cancer. So we, we believe that the practice of medicine should be left to providers, in this case, oncologists and decisions uh, that they make with their patients. Many of us are still in clinic as well. So we, we may not use in our clinics this, all the drugs that are approved, but no, we don't consider cost or value. And that's something that is taken, you know, is taken care of in other parts of, of, our, of our government and of our healthcare system. To me, that's that's really a misconception, a really important distinction between an approval and really like a, a medical recommendation. And it, it's different in different parts of the world. You know, is like is a global organization, and this is a little different from the European process, right? Absolutely, I think in Europe, so it, it's the European Medical Agency or Association (EMA). So they're the equivalent of FDA. We actually talk to them all the time. We talk to them at least once a month. And we, we talk to other global regulatory agencies as well. They all have different approval processes, but Europe's is quite unique in that they have kind of what's called, a, the, the simplest way to explain it is they have a start and stop of their review clock. And so they take things to a, a, a committee basically. And, and that committee is made up of rapporteurs from different parts of Europe, so different countries in Europe, and a rapporteur will be assigned a certain indication or a certain, you know, approval, and they evaluate it, and then they take it to a committee, and then the clock stops, and stops for a period of time, and then it resumes. So it's a a little bit of a different process than at the FDA, where it's quite fluid. There are no clock stops uh, with us, and that's, again, governed by the Code of Federal Regulations. And the other kind of difference is are around what types of data the EMA will accept and then what will be then covered. So one issue that you see, particularly in lung cancer, is that you see because lung cancer ultimately is becoming just a a collection of subsets of rare molecular mutations, that you see a lot of single arm data leading to FDA approvals. And making these drugs available. And in Europe, while the EMA, while the oncologist at the EMA may consider this data acceptable, it's a little bit more of a hurdle to then get coverage for those drugs because the the governing body which covers drugs in Europe often requires time to event endpoints in order to add a value or assign a value to the drug. So like a progression-free survival or an overall survival which certainly, of course, requires a randomized trial. So there's some differences, but we we do fundamentally view drug development in similar ways as evidenced through our conversations over over, the, over several years. But yes, the approval process is different. That's really, really helpful. I don't think a lot of our, our colleagues understand the differences here. You know, one thing that, that we've noticed and we talk about a lot is sort of how quickly our field is changing. And these advances are really coming at a mile a minute. Our standards of care are constantly shifting. And I think this raises a lot of challenges in interpreting some study results. So maybe without discussing a specific drug, how does the FDA address a study that uses a control arm that at the time of approval or or review is no longer the standard of care? Like when the study was designed, which would have been many years ago, that was Mm -hmm. an appropriate control. But in the present day, it's kind of an outdated control. Do you have to factor that in, like the the changing landscape? 
Yeah, we get this all the time and we're actually pretty heavily criticized for it. And so, I mean, so thanks for the question, but I, I think, so there's two things to consider here. Number one is that there is no what's called comparative efficacy standard in the code of regulation, federal regulations. And what I mean by that is when we're evaluating a new drug or a new drug application, it does not have to be better than the best that's available. It just has to be better than what they compared themselves to. Now, when you talk about, so there's a several examples where, where we could get into some specifics. So when you talk about um, an outdated control arm, sometimes to your point, that control arm, when they initiated the trial, when the company initiated a trial is appropriate. But maybe once that there's a, but because the FDA approves things at a more rapid pace, typically, um, and on earlier endpoints often, like uh, response rate or sometimes progression-free survival, then the drugs become available or become the new standard of care in the United States, often several years before they're available worldwide. And all oncology development most, I would say 90%, is global. You rarely ever see a trial being conducted exclusively in the U.S. And so we we have gone to companies in the past, and I, I think the targeted therapy space is a good example, where perhaps a, a newer, better targeted therapy has been approved for a specific uh, mutation and we know there are ongoing trials that may have just begun that are using kind of that outdated or you may call it a low-hanging fruit or, you know, maybe the first drug that was approved in that space and said to the company, hey, you know, we know in the U.S. most people are now getting X drug first line. So we think that's what you should compare yourself to. But again, the problem is global availability. And so because the, the trials we know that clinical trial enrollment in the U.S. is a problem, which which is another area of interest at the FDA. But so so these are global trials, and so that kind of creates an issue with the control arm, but also there's no regulatory standard that you have to compare to best available. I think other piece of this, and so in first-line trials, that you really just have to show that your data is applicable to a U.S. population. So let's say I think we can use an example here, and I think that's appropriate. If chemotherapy is your control arm in a frontline non-small cell lung cancer trial in an unselected population, well, we all know that today that's no longer standard of care. Again, if the trial was a global trial started several years ago, you'd find that most of the patients that got chemotherapy probably were not U.S. patients. And the argument there is the only way for these patients in other parts of the world to even get access to the immunotherapy is from from being on a trial. So you have to really take a global perspective and also a regulatory perspective. I hope that's helpful. No, very, very helpful. And you know, I think that we forget how long it takes the trial to be designed and to accrue. And while we're seeing results today, it's really reflecting many years of work. So um, that, that, that's very good. But let me just, can I just add one more thing to that? Because I, I think there is kind of a difference here. So let me add two things. So first, if a company came to us today and said, we want to design a frontline trial, U.S. patients will be enrolled and the control arm will be chemotherapy. And again, an unselected population. 
we would say no to that. We would say this is not appropriate, you know, for all the reasons you mentioned, that's not standard of care. Similarly, if a drug company conducted an ex-US trial, let's say a completely ex-US trial in the second line setting, maybe replicating some of our earlier immunotherapy approvals with single agent immunotherapy as a second line option compared to docetaxel or chemotherapy alone. And the patients and and most of the patients in that frontline setting had not received immunotherapy. We would also not accept that trial because it's no longer applicable. It's not applicable to the U S population because those frontline patients would not have gotten U S standard of care. So there is, there, there are some nuances there. Yeah. You really have to be pretty up to date with things. And can you maybe explain a little bit of the the terminology you're using? Uh, you, you mentioned earlier accelerated approval and full approval. Mm-hmm. Is that just what, what's the difference between those two? Yeah, so that's a great question. It also comes up a lot. So I'll start with a full approval or a we, traditional approval or regular approval. We call it many things, but basically, it just means that once the company get, receives this approval, that they no longer they're they're not obligated to con- further confirm clinical benefit that the FDA has evaluated their totality of evidence we have deemed that this is a favorable risk benefit and it's and and that the endpoint is something that is not an early clinical endpoint like response rate for example so usually these are trials with an overall survival endpoint with robust results or progression free survival an accelerated approval is a pathway. It's decided at the time that you actually develop your plan for this drug. And it came to be in 1992 and was born out of the HIV AIDS epidemic as a mechanism to get drugs to patients in a more urgent fashion. And so in HIV, of course, you have CD4 count, right? As a, as a very reliable measure of what's going on in the disease. Now, most of the accelerated approvals are in oncology. I think over 80% of them are. And we often use the term early clinical endpoint. We used to say surrogate, but we don't think that that's actually intellectually honest anymore because not all response rates actually translate into long-term benefit. But what you see in oncology is the use of overall response rate with durable response so we view this as an endpoint that it, it, it's, it's just what it sounds like. It's, it's clinical benefit, but it's an earlier signal than a time-to-event endpoint like progression-free survival or overall survival. So that's the most common endpoint that you'll see us use in our accelerated approvals. And, and, and usually these are small, small groups of patients like in lung cancer. You've seen a lot of these, a lot of our targeted therapies come in with single arm data with response rate as an endpoint. And because it is an early endpoint, we do then ask the company to confirm this clinical benefit. And it can be in the form of a randomized trial. So you saw that a lot with the early targeted therapies like EGFR, ALK, osimertinib is a really good example in which, um, and, and the ALK drugs too, in which their initial approvals were in refractory settings based on response rate. And then in order to confirm clinical benefit, 
they did randomized trials to show a time to event benefit, either PFS or later go on to show OS. So that's the difference between an accelerated and a full approval. When you see an accelerated approval, you have to ask yourself, okay, what is the FDA asking this company to do to confirm, to further confirm, because we believe that there's clinical benefit with that accelerated approval, but it's an early signal. And we think this has been a really great mechanism to get effective therapies to patients more quickly than they would have otherwise been available. We do make mistakes sometimes. And uh, I, I think if you, you, you've probably seen two withdrawals of accelerated approvals in the past few months. Um, and this is because this was in the small cell space. And these were accelerated approvals based on early, again, early clinical endpoints, response rates ranging from 12 to 20% in a very refractory setting in the small cell population. And um, their confirmatory trials fail to confirm clinical benefit. And so in consultation with the FDA, those accelerated approvals were withdrawn. Um, and, And there's some other kind of pieces to that too. Like the landscape, of course, has totally changed in small cell where most patients really should be getting immunotherapy up front. And so less of an unmet need there for those approvals to stay on the market. But it's something we're constantly reevaluating. Now, for accelerated approval, there is a comparative efficacy standard, unlike regular approval, meaning you do have to show that you are providing some clinical benefit over what is available therapy. That explains a lot. And so accelerated approvals are always going to re- require some sort of a confirmation confirmatory to, to move on to full approval. What about priority review and, and breakthrough designation? Do these mean different things? They do. Breakthrough designation is something that we grant companies or investigators early in their development process based on early clinical data. So this could be on very few numbers of patients. Sometimes it's on small randomized trials. Uh, I was going to say phase two, but we we try to stay away from saying phase one, two, three anymore because really we encourage seamless trial design. And so it basically means that that drug development program has the potential to be transformative in that disease space. And as a result of being granted breakthrough designation, we really take an all-hands-on-deck approach to working with that company and those investigators to bring their drug to market should the results pan out as they enroll more patients. So it's a really important designation, and it's a really important way to kind of get the full force of the FDA, so to speak, all the teams, because there's so much more to approving a drug than their clinical and safety data. You have to make sure that their toxicology data is all has all been performed, all the studies that they need. You have to make sure the dosing is correct. And um, sometimes we have some issues with that because programs move very quickly. You have to make sure that if you approve the drug in this record you know, fashion, in this very expedient manner, that the manufacturing is all set up and there's no impurities in the drug. So particularly for new drugs, the breakthrough designation is a wonderful mechanism to kind of get all of that in order so that we can get the drug to patients sooner. Priority review 
is a designation that's granted at the time that an application is submitted. So this is something that's FDA wide. And and so that's why I think you see a lot of oncology applications do get priority review because the criteria are along the lines of being kind of for life-threatening diseases and contributing meaningfully to society. So should should these drugs have priority review over you know, other, other drugs or other areas within the FDA. And, and they often do, and it just shaves off a few months of the federally dictated review time. So, so it allows the drug, again, another mechanism to be approved faster. And I, I didn't really think of manufacturing. I guess there's a, a whole lot to it. The, the year we've had in the past year, you've been very busy. There've been a lot of approvals for lung cancer for our audience. Mm-hmm. And, and so thank you certainly for all the work you're doing, but you know, in the background, we're in the midst of a pandemic. And how has that affected this this whole process? It has affected the approval process. I think fortunately, most of the lung approvals um, were not affected in a way that patients saw or providers saw. We were able to get them out um, all on time, well ahead of time. Uh, we certainly do prioritize the new drugs for novel indications over, you know, like the fourth ALK inhibitor or something. So, so there is there is some rhyme, a reason to kind of how we prioritize these timelines. But manufacturing, as we just talked about, you know, a, f- a few seconds ago, has been impacted because we have entire teams of people who travel to the sites where your drugs are being manufactured to make sure that they're being done under sterile conditions, um, that, you know, that everything is appropriate, all the boxes are checked, so to speak. And that, that was limited. So there were a few drugs within, within the oncology space that, um, were either delayed. The FDA has made some, you know, some accommodations to do things like virtual inspections, but that took some time to sort out. I'm really proud of our team. We have a really robust thoracic oncology team at the FDA. We went completely remote uh, in March, so it's been about a year, and they never skipped a beat. Um, They continued their review work, juggling family responsibilities, and, you know, everything we've all been managing in the pandemic, we, we kept patients first. We met with a lot of patients um, throughout the pandemic, really wanting to make sure that we are the FDA. So we are the federal agency responsible for COVID and the vaccines. But we we wanted to make sure that our oncology patients knew that we, the oncologists at the FDA and the Oncology Center of Excellence, were keeping them a priority in our minds and our work every day. And that they are not forgotten because, you know, this pandemic is a once in a lifetime experience a horrible once in a lifetime experience, but cancer was here before COVID. It will be here after COVID. And so um, we're really proud of all the work we've done, you know, last year with the approvals and we're going to continue. We're going to keep that up. We've definitely noticed. We've been very impressed. I think the FDA has gone above and beyond. We've all been very impressed. Are are there any specific initiatives that the FDA has launched in response to the COVID-19 pandemic? There's two that I I think are worth mentioning. So one was FDA-wide, and that really was, again, about a year ago, we put out guidance basically around how to keep patients safe in in a clinical trial setting. 
And a lot of that was around decentralization. Some people use the term hybridization because I, I think it's very difficult to do a fully decentralized trial, but it was basically providing a pathway for investigators and sponsors to continue to run their clinical trials, but to keep patients safe. So this involved, you know, remote visits, electronic consents, um, shipping, shipping investigational drug to patients. And um, what we're hearing is that many patients and providers want this to continue Post-COVID, certainly one of the barriers to clinical trial participation is location, transportation. You know, can, can you get your labs drawn locally if you are, are on a trial in D.C. and you live in New York? And I think that guidance provided for a lot of that. I, I, I also think people thought that the FDA somehow did not allow this or would not have allowed this prior to the pandemic. And we we did. And we, we were actually encouraging companies to do this. But the nature of clinical trials is de-risking and minimizing risk and keeping kind of a, you know, as homogenous as you can of not so much a population, but just making sure that patients are kept safe. So I think that kind of push and that necessity to decentralize trials, hopefully we will take the lessons from it and we'll carry this forward um, to make it a bit easier for patients to participate in trials. So that's one. The second was we saw a lot of companies say to us, come to us and say, in order to keep patients safe, we think that we can provide our our drug in a formulation which allows patients to come to clinic less frequently. And one of those certainly was the pembrolizumab approval, um, which allowed patients to get pembrolizumab once every six weeks, as opposed to every two or three, depending on their regimen. And although it is something we probably would have approved in the absence of COVID, I think we certainly expedited that um, approval. And there are several other approvals um, that were kind of in that same vein. So kind of working on different dosing. I think Dervalumab was approved recently um, with the more spaced out regimen and certainly all the oral therapies that were approved in hematology. One of the first oral therapies was approved for, um, I think, AML. So you saw several of those. And actually, Jenny Gao and Rick Pazder wrote all of these up in, in a recent JAMA Ankh perspective piece. I'd love to hear just a little bit about your own career path. You know, as, as oncologists, when we finish our specialty training, we have a lot of different types of career to explore. And you hear people choosing between academic, private practice, industry. We don't hear a lot about the FDA as like a career path. So was there something that drew you to the FDA? Yeah. I mean, you know, like everything in life, it's all about people, right? And, you know, you mentioned we met at USC. I'm an LA native, you know, I was born and raised in LA. Nobody leaves California. And I, I, I spent eight years of my life at USC medical school and residency and I did a geriatrics fellowship and as you mentioned I had a wonderful mentor um, Dr. Anthony L. Corey and he's a GI hepatobiliary guy and I was convinced that I was going to be a GI oncologist and I was going to stay at USC forever and live out my days and when I was applying to fellowship I applied to the NCI because it was this just very unique place where you really learned how to how to run clinical trials. You became a clinical trialist, essentially. And when I talked to Anthony about 
fellowship and my rank list, he told me, you know, Harpreet, you can stay here at USC and we'll take you and you'll live a great life. But we, we may always, it may be hard to kind of break out of that junior faculty role. And he said, why don't you go somewhere where you can acquire a skill set and then come back to us? And so that's how I chose the NCI for fellowship. And I fully intended to return to California. But while I was at the NCI, we had a lot of exposure to people who worked at the FDA because they often continue their clinic at NCI just because it's local or many of them had done fellowship there. And so I, I came to understand what it, what exactly is it that you guys do? And, you know, I, I have always had an interest in, in public policy and public health. And then, you know, a, a closer personal connection was Mary Pazder. She was a nurse practitioner. I was in the immunotherapy group because you join a group um, at, at the NCI when you're a fellow. And she's, of course, married to Rick Pazder, who's my, now my boss and who leads the Oncology Center of Excellence at the FDA. And she kind of, um, you know, he, he was kind of an intimidating guy, <laughs> and, but, but she kind of humanized him and made him more approachable to me. Mary was wonderful. And, you know, she, she later died of ovarian cancer. Um, and many people say that that is kind of the point at which Dr. Pazder became not only a regulator um, and an academic, but but also a, a, a true patient advocate, which I think is just so extremely rare that you see a true advocate in an oncologist and a regulator all wrapped into one. Um, because I think all oncologists are advocates, but that regulator piece too was something he, you know, he, he had. And so it was really this full, I think it, it was just the perfect connection and kind of constellation of, of circumstances, so to speak, that really drew me to the FDA. Um, I, I view it as an academic place of, of thought and intellectual pursuits. We're really a science-driven agency. I view it as a clinical position. Many of us are still in clinic um, and I and I, I also enjoy the drug development piece. I love seeing a drug from you know that first in human trial to sorting out really big complex issues around novel endpoints or contribution of components in study design or bigger issues like representation or lack of representation in clinical trials or drugs in older adults. So if, for me, it was. Um, it was, I think, the perfect fit. Um, had I not moved to DC, I, I, I probably would have never <laughs> considered the FDA. And for what it's worth, Anthony did offer to bring me back <laughs> and be an early phase trialist uh, in Orange County where USU was expanding. And um, I think he's still hurt to this day, <laughs> but uh, we do keep in touch. He's a no great way. mentor to me. <laughs> no, he's, a, he's a great mentor. And I can tell you just from the other side of it, that while Anthony was really had your best interest at heart, everyone else at USC was crushed. <laughs> you didn't say. <laughs> I, I know that firsthand, but you know I think we're all the better for it. Frankly, um, you, you mentioned sort of a direct patient care clinic. Now you don't mean that you have a clinic at the FDA, right? No, I don't. Um, but I, I used to continue my clinic, seeing patients in clinic at the NCI until really until until I took this director position. 
Um, cause I, I, I felt that I wanted to just really focus my efforts on being the division director, dealing with the, um, now my days are mostly regulatory work, mentoring. I have a division of about 17 oncologists and I'm, you know, part of my role as division director is to develop their careers. So I no longer see patients, but I would say anywhere between 50 to 70% of our oncologists do uh, continue a clinic, whether it's at um, GW, the VA, NIH, you know, there's so many hot Sibley. So there's, there's, there's many that are in clinic throughout the DMV. Yeah. I feel like you left one off right at Georgetown, but. Oh, I don't know if we, I think we have, I think we have someone. You do, you do. So uh, now you were describing sort of career development, the, the team you oversee. I mean, that sounds like mentorship to me. And I also see a lot of publications from you, from Dr. Gal, a lot of high impact presentations. Is this kind of a new thing or has the FDA always had this foot in sort of academic pursuits? It's, it's new since 1999. I would say and that, that's when Dr. Pazder uh, joined the FDA. He joined in a leadership position. He had come from MD Anderson where he had been director of the fellowship program. He's also actually a GI oncologist um, at his core. And so he's an academician, you know, and he came uh, from a really robust career to, to the FDA. And he looked around and he said, you know, we, we, we need to be involved <laughs> with academic leaders and key opinion leaders. We're not just regulators. We're oncologists first and foremost. And so um, with, with him and with, uh, I think, really dedicated and thoughtful recruitment, um, he's been able over the years to recruit really passionate people from reputable institutions, not just local, you know, from around the country too, the more we kind of get out there and people who are interested in academic pursuits. I think it is something that's unique to the oncology group at the FDA. There's about a hundred of us all together. And it's something that really attracted me to the position. I, I don't think I would be happy to not kind of have my hand in writing, thinking through thoughtful things, contributing to the academic literature. I feel like you're casting this in a really unique and, and maybe different light than a lot of people think. So if we have trainees listening that might be interested in a career at the FDA, are there certain traits or skill sets that are, are kind of important? Or maybe I should say, you know, who should explore the FDA as a career path and how would they go about learning more? So really anyone interested in oncology drug development, that's really what working at the FDA is like a masterclass for your lifetime in, in drug development. And I think for fellows, particularly who are interested in clinical trials, obviously that's all that we evaluate for the most part is data from from clinical trials. This, the skill sets that I think are really important are reading, writing, kind of um, writing in a in a thoughtful way, not necessarily in a regulatory way. But yeah, I mean, yeah, these academic publications that you see, I think the desire it doesn't necessarily have to be a desire to continue patient care, but a desire to be patient centric. And whether that means understanding a patient perspective about things like endpoints or patient reported outcomes, 
So, so really wanting to keep that oncologist hat on, but also wanting a broader experience, someone who's under, interested in policy. And there's ways to check it out. Jennifer Gao, she is our direct associate director for education at the FDA, and she very actively recruits um, new fellows, or even we actually have recruited a few folks from academia to join the FDA. Uh, and she runs also the AACR fellowship program, which I think is a very cool way. And this is the first year that they did this, but it's a very cool way to get some insight into what actually happens at the FDA. So if you're thinking about a career there, then you can kind of dip your toe in the water before taking the full jump, so to speak. That sounds like a, a really nice opportunity. Yeah. Heartbeat, I could really go into so much more, but I want to be respectful of your time. So, you know, thank you for for being so generous with your time, uh, spending time with ISLC today, and just a genuine thank you for all of your efforts for our patients. Thanks so much for having me. It's so great to reconnect. Uh, I know we see each other in meetings, but it's it's very cool to be able to chat this way, and um, I hope we can do it again sometime. I'll take you up on that for sure. This has been Lung Cancer Considered. Uh, Don't forget to like the podcast and to share it with your colleagues and friends. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 